welcome to The End of the World. Or more adequately put, a podcast covering all forms of pop cultural apocalypses. So whether it be a nuclear holocaust brought on by the launch of ChatGPT, the long foretold expiration date of the planet predicted by past peoples, or the sudden release of cordyceps hordes long pushed underground by Fedra, we have you covered and you are in safe hands. May I, da- may I dare say as safe as with Joel when a bloater makes his way for your loved ones. And as usual on this journey, you have us as your guides, myself, storyteller Trevor William Horn, and pseudo-survivalist Kenny Brake. Kenny, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing good. I'm, I, I'm surviving as a survivalist, I guess, but no, I'm just surviving. We're uh, in the process of moving to a new apartment, and so sleep will come to me eventually. <laughs> That's a form of survival. It is. Yeah, yeah. Survival. It yeah. is. <laughs> now, Kenny, before we get into The Last of Us, I have an important question for you. I would survive. Okay, we okay. First of all, <laughs> I will. After weeks of deliberation, and after my recent social media post, where my mother and my wife turned against me, saying that you would survive longer, I should concede to the people that there is a chance, a sliver of a chance, of a sliver of a possibility that you would survive longer. A sliver, but it's it's like a big sliver. I, I okay. I'm probably more built for a post-apocalyptic setting versus an apocalyptic setting. So you're built for like once like humanity's been restored and we're learning to survive again. Exactly. When, when in that place is when we need stories because we need people to tell history. And that's where I come in to write the history that has happened. So you want to rewrite the history of how you want it to look is what you're saying. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I, it, I'd be a center figure. Yeah. 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 You'd in be the arc you'd... of the story. <laughs> The Trevor story, how I created the world. <laughs> or more like how I saved the world, but yeah. you know, whatever, okay. Little little details here or there. Anyways, I will concede that in an apocalyptic scenario, if the apocalypse breaks out right away, you will survive longer. But anyways, besides the point, I have a different question for you today. Okay. You are the last known survivor of a rare global plague. As a companion, you get two choices. You can choose one or the other. Either... The volleyball named Wilson that never leaves your side will be forever be with you from Castaway or a dog. But within six months, it gets bit and turned. As in, if you've seen the the terrible scene in I Am Legend, what do you choose? The volleyball. The volleyball? Okay, explain your reasoning. Because then I'm not an, I'm emotionally attached to an in, you know inanimate object. I already yell at inanimate objects as it is. <laughs> wait, so. what? Wait, explain. You yell at inanimate objects? Oh yeah, like when I'm when I'm working. If something's not working, I'll, I'll I'll yell at the wall. I'll yell at the hammer. I'll yell. At, you know, it's like, come on, you piece of because because they don't understand. It's just it's an easy way outlet to get your emotions out. You yell at a dog, it's gonna remember that. Oh, that's <laughs> true. That sounds okay. bad. I know, but that's it's like, true. I was just thinking more of the idea of. Would it be better to love but to lose or to never lose at all? In that scenario, for me, it would be better to never lose at all. Mm. I'd rather just be like, there's my volleyball. It's my little totem I can talk to on occasion. (laughs) And, you know, it talks back to me once I get, you know, further along into insanity. Yeah. (laughs) Then it starts talking back to me. And I have these great conversations, these deep philosophical conversations about life with a volleyball. See, this is why we need each other, actually. You would help us survive. And then I would add the deep intellectual stimulation 
like a Wilson. Exactly. About, You're okay? my Wilson. I'm your Wilson. Wow. Okay. That's all right. I'm the volleyball you carry around. <laughs> and okay. You know what? I guess we all got to know our place. You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm about as helpful as a volleyball in a post-apocalyptic setting. So that's good to know. Anyways, now this is not all we want to talk about today. And we don't merely want to offend my own sensibilities. As previously stated, this project is all about re-examining apocalyptic portrayals across the multimedia landscape. Movies, shows, books, and all end-of-the-world related paraphernalia are fair game. The premise for this project is to re-examine these various accounts in a post-COVID world because for many pre-pandemic apocalyptic portrayals felt more distant. But now there, there's at least a, a plausibility structure. There's a sense that when we watch these accounts, there's a, a realness. There feels like a greater dose of reality in the midst of them. Or at least we can, we can relate to them yeah. at a lower degree than what these shows or movies are about. And so for today, we are continuing by exploring episodes four and five of the hit HBO series, The Last of Us. So this is your friendly neighborhood spoiler warning. Anything in episodes one through five are fair game. With this all in mind, Kenny, what did you think of episodes four and five of The Last of Us? Well, I thought we went from a, you know, one of the most, you know, oh, isn't this a sweet episode? Isn't this just, you know, a, look at life. Love. Look at love. Look yep. at look at how humanity comes together to a uh, garbage can fire of humanity. So yep. <laughs> just, just in a split second. Um, I thought it was a good episode, or episodes. I thought... Um, I mean, with the two episodes, how they were combined, it definitely felt like kind of a mid-season finale where it's like one fed into the other. Yeah. Um, but it was very, very interesting. It kept you engaged. I loved the, uh, I love the dynamic of the people that you were afraid of in this episode, the things you were afraid of in this episode weren't exactly the infected as much as it were, what was the people. Mm-hmm. You know the, the you know the you didn't at the t at the very beginning when they're fighting the people you didn't know if they were raiders you didn't know who they were but they're a revolutionary force that stood up to Fedra, um, but the fact that the majority of the episode is them being afraid of the people, mm. not afraid of the infected, changes the way the uh, the story is a little bit. That's a, such an interesting point. I would imagine that's similar in a lot of po po apocalyptic portrayals. Is the where is who should you truly fear? It's a really poignant point because in many of these, the, there's always the beast or there's the the virus or the zombies. Or there's some thing that people overtly fear, but then there's also a greater fear of humanity in, in our most depraved state in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, and that's just like, like and we've, you know, in our, in our pre-podcast talks, we were talking about what we thought of things and you know how we looked at things. And one of the things that was brought up was the family dynamic of mm. it. You have two opposing, similar but opposing views on family. And again, spoiler warnings. Um, <laughs> you have, you find out, you know, that, you know, the reason that Kathleen, the head of the um, revolutionary force, not the Fireflies, but a separate, altogether revolutionary force is trying to track down a guy named Henry and his son, or his brother, Sam. Mm -hmm. we, beginning of the episode, you think Sam, uh, uh, son, because it's not, you know. Yeah. For all those, those of us who haven't played the game, <laughs> um, we don't know who is who. We're learning that. But she's tracking him down, and you don't know exactly what he's done. You come to find out at the end, he turned in 
her brother, who was the head of that kind of underground resistance force. Third party. We'll call yeah. it a third party. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he turned that him in to, uh, to, to Fedra to get medicine to save his brother's life who mm-hmm. had leukemia. Um, and Kathleen, in return, takes down Fedra. Yep. You know, it was like the, one of the guys that uh, was her right-hand man said, like, yeah, you know, your brother Michael, he did a lot of good things. Like, we were really behind him, but he never moved. Like, yep. you did this. So it's interesting because he, you know, the whole it's, – it's, it's two episodes of how far would you go for family. Mm. Um, you have Henry who's willing to turn someone in that he says is one of the greatest men he ever knew, someone he respected, probably loved, to save his brother's life. He's willing to sacrifice a one to save a one. Mm. Where Kathleen, she's willing to scorch earth to get vengeance for that. Yep. So it's both a how far are you willing to go for family. He's willing to say, I'm willing to sacrifice the one to make sure that my younger brother can survive. She's willing to just kill everyone to prove a point. No, totally. And and I want to come back to the how far will you go for family. Let me put a pin in that. But you, you are hitting on an interesting point of the, almost the... The moral calculus, the ethical conundrum of a life for a life, especially in the midst of the most intense of situations and circumstances. You know, the the best example I almost think of is because a lot of times we think of people who are more black and white about it. So I think of Captain America throughout his his cap's point is like we never exchange a life for a life, right? Every life has value. We never play that game. Yet in this setting, it also becomes extremely complex to do that calculus of how to uh, who to save, who not to save. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's definitely a complex calculus and conversation to have. Well, all the variables that you yeah. have to take into account. Like, you, I mean, Captain America is talking, you know, talking about it in a world where it's not as, uh, I mean, it's dire, but it's not 80% of the population has been destroyed by a virus. Yeah. Um, in, in this, you have, I'm, I'm sure that nothing like Henry might've just stayed a resistance fighter if he was one, it seems mm-hmm. like he was, would have stayed who he was unless Fedra was able to say, hey, we have medicine for him. Yep. I'm sure nothing would have changed. Like, he would have been like, my brother's dying. This is so sad, but there's nothing we can do. We're in this mm-hmm. apocalyptic wasteland of life, and my brother's going to be another statistic for it. But then an opportunity was presented to him, and then that's where those variables come in. I have, you know, my brother could live a long life. You know, my family could live a long life versus... You know, cat. You know, versus like you know. Oh well, there's nothing we can do. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And I think you're. It's an interesting. You're right. It, the the context is different. We're speaking of in a normal situation versus when we're in the most intense and extreme of situations, which is what apocalyptic movies and shows. The appeal of them is they put these people in these uh, almost otherworldly situations mm-hmm. and circumstances and say what comes out and a lot of times we see depravity comes out yeah yeah but there is that sense of that wrestling and things become it's almost like when when any of us become put in really intense situations uh what's in there things become clarified in a lot of ways and when you're forced to make a decision because mm-hmm. a lot of times we're able to live in the gray we're able to live in the midst of uh ambiguity but here you're, you're faced with direct decisions that affect people you love. And, and that question, though, that you proposed earlier, I think is really poignant and it's really important. How far will you go for family? Because once I had finished episode four and then I was getting prepped for episode five, 
that was the question I wrote down. And the top scene that came to my mind was the very beginning scene when Joel and Ellie are heading to Kansas City. They've left Bill and Frank's. They're in the car. They're trekking west. And first of all, Ellie finds an old tape. Yeah. And she asks Joel if this was back in his day or something, which was <laughs> hilarious, this Hank Williams album. And I, I always love whenever a show or movie projects the main point through music, oh, I'm a sucker. Mm-hmm. You got me, right? I, I'm, I'm writing the music down. I'm, I'm paying attention to the lyrics. And so ominously playing is this Hank Williams album as they're driving and he's singing alone and forsaken, forgotten, without any love. And I just thought this was a perfect like foreshadowing for what was to come in the episode. And as this plays, Ellie asks a pressing question that arises in, in most end of the world situations. Yeah. She says, if you, Joel, don't think there's hope for the world, why bother on? What's the point of living? What's the point of getting out of the bed in the morning? What keeps you going in the midst of this? And he responds this way. He, he observes, you haven't seen the world, so you don't know. You keep going for family. That's about it. Mm-hmm. And right away from this, the main topic for consideration is proposed that in the end, family is what matters most. And so in one sense, the topic is family, but I also think the topic is something else as well. It's the topic in the idea of, of what's your why? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Because every human needs a why. All of us need a why, though in the most intensive situations, in the most difficult of seasons, in the most challenging of times, that why becomes even more important. Because you don't have any other, you don't have other things pointing to why you should keep going. And so here is, you're, you're almost in apocalyptic scenarios boiled down to the, to the very essence of who you are as a human, and you have to have an answer. And so for Joel, we find the answer is the centrality of family. It also makes me think of the idea of, if you've heard business kind of consultant, Simon Sinek, he talks about, uh, for marketers and innovators, he talks about starting with why. Mm-hmm. Don't start with how, don't start with what, don't start with the specifics, because that's usually where we start, but start with why. And that's the, mo- the way to motivate people to move forward. And so I think, again, we're, we're talking about family, but we're also talking about the deeper part of what drives Joel, what drives these characters. And so we're really hitting on the centrality of family here. But there's also a corollary fear that comes from that. Because to open yourself up to family, and actually in apocalyptic scenarios, it's not just family. It's probably maybe more the idea of found family. Yeah, the family you choose. Yeah, the family you choose. Because obviously a lot of these people lose their blood relatives in the process. But the people you choose, the people, the found family that you have, that when you let these people in, you also open yourself up to pain. You also open yourself up to, it's kind of like what we talked in the last episode, to love is also to know loss. Yeah. And especially in an apocalypse scenario where you've seen all sorts of loss, those those things continue to compound on one another. And so I thought at the very end of episode five, when right before Sam turns and they're they're drawing on the etiquette or like the etiquette sketch board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, um, carbon copy board thing. Whatever it is. Yeah, they're they're communicating. That future technology that we don't know what it is. Yes, future technology. Yeah, (laughs) future technology. Yeah, anyways. But so they're they're speaking, they're they're writing, and obviously because Sam is deaf, which I also found out he's actually deaf in real life. Oh, nice. I mean, well, I mean, not nice, but interesting. Representation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, (laughs) representation. No, but, and, and Sam candidly writes, are you ever scared? 
And then Ellie responds, I'm scared all the time. And I thought this is what stood out to me. She wrote, I'm scared of ending up alone. Yeah. I'm scared of ending up alone. So in one regard, family provides cru a crucial reason to keep going, an impetus to get out of bed in the morning. But the opposite is true as well. The loss of family, the loss of love opens one up to the terrors of being found completely alone in the end. And that very ending when Joel's burying the bodies of Henry and Sam and the camera just comes to his face and Ellie's kind of walking away in the distance and you almost see in his face the look of terror because I, I think in that moment he's realizing that he's burying these bodies, that he's starting to feel something for Ellie that's more than just like the beating episode four where he says, no, you're cargo. Yeah. She's not cargo anymore. She's becoming something more than that. And I think that terrifies him. I think he first saw that like down in the, uh, the underground like school that they were in, you know, because yep. he saw um, Ellie playing with uh, playing with Sam, and like he saw this connection, this childhood, like, oh, here's she's she's a kid. She's like mm -hmm. she she has a life ahead of her. Uh, I I'm tasked with protecting her and taking care of her, and all of a sudden it becomes more of a relational thing than a transactional thing. And so I think, yeah, where you're saying he sees that terror because all of a sudden for him, it's like it's no longer just like if she dies, she dies, you know, yeah. <laughs> like Yvonne Drago, like if she dies, she dies. It's 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 a oh, no, I'm connected to this person now. And these two people that, you know, at first I'm like, we're not working with rats, you know, we're not doing this. And then he changes and he's like, you know, hey, you should come with us. Like, you know, it'd be good for you guys to come with us. Yep. You know, he opened himself up to that and then. Within 24 hours, not even, 12 hours, both are dead. Oh, gosh. the And so he, that, yeah, that, that look that you're talking about where it's like all of a sudden it's like I opened myself up to say, yeah, you guys can walk with us to Wyoming. And Ellie and Sam are going to form a bond. Maybe me and this Henry guy will like become, you know, I'll be able to teach him things. We'll be able to work together on things. All of a sudden, that's just taken away right away. And then The Last of Us brings the knife in their back. Right, right. It's just, it's just. <laughs> And so he, it's it's this like, almost a look of like, yeah, like like terror of, he realizes he's built a relationship with Ellie, and should he continue building a relationship with other people? Should he find more chosen family? Mm -hmm. No, that's totally it, and it's it's the vulnerability of opening yourself up, and and in one sense, in apocalyptic scenario, there's all sorts of other considerations of vulnerability about survival and raiders and all that kind of thing, but it takes to the ex extreme version what we normally encounter and what we normally encounter. And I, you know, actually another scene that I, comes to mind is in when the, they're the snipers shooting at them, they're behind the car. Yeah. And Joel has that moment where he looks at Ellie and he says, do you trust me? Mm -hmm. And I thought that was the, that may be one of the turning points of the entire season of their relationship because she was like, yes, I, I trust you. And he obviously leaves and, you know, saves her and stuff. And then the bloater comes out which is another thing that I thought was interesting too. But yeah, there, there's a moment there. There's a turning in the relationship like you're hitting on where it's like, do you trust me? And there's a cemented place that's opened them up to the vulnerabilities of what they could lose in the process. Mm -hmm. And I also think when we speak of the ending of The Last of Us, I thought it was interesting. You'd said this earlier, but in episode three, we got this beautiful portrayal of love. We got this of companionship. And episode five really brought us back to the point of saying, yes, those things are great, but we're also in the apocalypse. Yeah. We're also in the end. And I thought the timing, because I really liked that, you know, zombies aren't the central part of this. There's actually other parts of nuance of relational dynamics, of loneliness, of love that are taking place. 
if the very episode of episode five, though frustrating, also brings us back to the genre we're in and reminding us why it's so hard to love, why it's so hard to let other people in, in this specific scenario. And they bring the zombies out or the cordycep hordes from underground with the bloater, which we've mentioned multiple times, which was incredible. That giant behemoth of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they bring them out. And even that reminds us and pulls us back that for a second you thought, okay, we're things are on the rise, but then we're pulled back into the reality of the situation that they're actually in. Now, I, when we were talking kind of pre-pod about this, I thought you had some interesting marks about the nature of the relationship because we're speaking of family, but there's different dynamics in families yeah. between parent and child, between sister and brother. I'm really interested to hear what you think, as we were talking earlier, you had some interesting comments about what you think the nature of the relationship between Joel and Ellie is. So, I mean, back when we were talking originally, and um, I think in episode three, I mentioned that this is more of a second chance storyline than a mm -hmm. redemptive storyline. Um, and looking at it further, especially through episode four and episode five and how the relationship is building out, I don't see as much of a father-daughter dynamic as I see a big brother-little sister dynamic. You know, the way they're joking with each other, the way they're talking with each other, um, there's a level of respect, but... It's definitely it comes across to me as more like a sibling a sib sibling style relationship than a uh, parental child relationship. Um, a because I think that you're not really going to adopt that type of relationship right away with a stranger, and B I don't know if Joel is ready to open himself up to that level of love again just yet. So you know from the dad jokes being told, which I thought were hilarious. Yeah, um, they're really punny. Uh, <laughs> I have a dad, so here we are. Um, to like, for, yeah, from the dad jokes to the way she just kind of like talks to him, or like when she's like, "Oh, Joe will say no," and I'll sit there and just keep talking until he says yes, you know. And then the sniper shoots at them. Um, but like that whole way that you know they, it goes across, I think it just comes across as more, more of a uh, a sibling relationship than a father daughter relationship. Do you do you think that's just a sign of where we are in the season, or do you think it will? stay that way like by the end of the the series that's an excellent question um as of right now i think it might be just a sign of where we're at in the season um i think it would take some more traumatic experiences that are you know them saving each other not just joel saving ellie but ellie saving joel type oh of, true yeah um uh, situations for him to be able to open himself up to that otherwise i think it just kind of stays this you know uh, which which isn't a bad thing, a sibling style relationship um, where he wants to protect a younger sibling. Because I have two younger brothers, and you know I was very protective of my younger brothers because you know no one can beat up my brothers except for me. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that uh, makes sense. Yeah. So I wish I could say I understand, but I'm just not a fighter. I'm a lover. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but yes, I, I, that's what I, I think. I think it's it comes across as more of a sibling, which I almost prefer, I think, because it makes it, it's not so much of a trope of a father protecting a daughter and I have to save her. It's more of, it's a chosen friendship versus a forced friendship. No, that makes sense. I, I do think though, and this is what we were talking about before, was the setup early on with Joel losing his daughter in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. It... I feel like you're, so I think you're really hitting on something right with the nature of the relationship. And I actually think it's an interesting piece of the development of their relationship because a lot of these scenarios, whether you think of movies like The Road or something or, or Bird Box or something, there's inherently a father-daughter or a relational dynamic 
that actually Burt Box may not be the best example because uh, Sandra Bullock refers to his kids as boy and girl. So that's, that's <laughs> beside the point. But the there's an inherent relationship that we're given from the very beginning. So you can you step into that and you understand it. Where here, I think you're hitting on that there's a development of a relationship over a series, which is what's making the series so dynamic is the relationship of Joel and Ellie and the yeah. dynamism between the two. And so I think you're hitting on something that's really important at the development. I do think I have a hard time believing by the end that they won't have the father-daughter dynamic just because of the setup with Joel's daughter. And maybe maybe they'll maybe they'll throw us off in that and that will be a different I agree with you right now though. They definitely come up, especially with the jokes, the brother the the sibling dynamic seems more central, and that totally makes sense uh, so far. You know, I th- we've been talking a lot about family. And I think that's a central dynamic, found family, vulnerability, trust. In a lot of ways, the themes of vulnerability, trust, love, a lot of these build really much so dovetail off episode three as well, Yeah. where we're getting almost the opposite example, where in episode three, we got the, here's a profound version of them building a life together. And then in episode five, we're getting this, yeah, but it also gets torn down because we're in the apocalypse, we're in the end of the world. But there are a number of other themes, I think, that are permeating that are throughout the episodes and so kenny i'm wondering i'm curious are there what else stood out to you in the episode i mean it's interesting to see a the rise of a you know resistance revolutionary style people group um who are oppressed by fedra and you know henry talks about all the bad things they did how terrible it was and then they rise up and are just as terrible you know it's as most revolutions are the people that have been oppressed turn around and become the oppressors um no there's totally a cycle there of of tyranny there's a cycle of what we know to be true throughout history as well especially when the oppressed have held in and we're hitting on this idea of the maybe forgiveness and unforgiveness i mean Mm -hmm. especially in kathleen but we're which i mean she's willing to go to the zillion degree with the unforgiveness and bitterness with insider but you're totally hitting on an interesting dynamic that we see throughout history, too. Well, and it's interesting with Kathleen. It's like her, like the resistance is stepping up to fight Fedra because of how bad they are. Kathleen is leading it through a personal vendetta. Yes. It's, it's well, yes, I'm sure she believes in the principles of the of the revolution and the, and the resistance. She is doing it to take down the people that killed her brother. Even in the first part you see her in where she's talking to the doctor who's like, I delivered you. I'm the doctor here. You need me. She kills him. And yeah, that was it, it, it shows how far she's willing to go. How many more doctors are in that area? You might have some people that know first aid. You might know people that know basic you know, CPR, first aid class, maybe some EMT training. Who knows? But he's a licensed doctor, and she'll just kill him because she's not getting the answer she wants from him. Well, and it goes back to how far we go for family. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's her family's dead at this point. Her brother's dead, but... It comes back to that. Her central drive is that family dynamic. Well, she's willing to risk the, the populace of the resistance to settle a personal score. Well, they're all fodder. Yeah. yeah. For her, for, for her, her bitterness. It's, it's, it's my, my bitterness, my vengeful, you know, my, my, my vengeful desire to kill the people that killed my brother is stronger than making sure that the people that I'm trying to protect have a doctor. Yeah. Which, you know, there's, there's the, I mean, it's an eight old adage that's like been said through different media and it, you know, depending on who you ask, it'll, they'll tell you it's a Chinese proverb or a Japanese proverb, but it's a, you know, he who goes seeking revenge should dig two graves, you know? So mm. it's essentially that's with Colleen. It's like, or Kathleen, she's like, you're, you are killing everybody 
and all you're doing is making it harder for you to survive after this. Well, she should probably uh, dig probably a hundred graves. Yeah, <laughs> after the, the end of it. Well, I mean, look at the end when she goes and chases down them at the very end, and you know the sniper's dead. They've, yep. they've crashed into the building. Her actions, because there are innocents in the resistance. Mm-hmm. There are the children. There are the people that aren't fighters, but they believe. You know, like hey, we're just we were oppressed by Fedra too. Yay, the resistance killed off Fedra. They're all now going to die from the um, infected yep. because that huge swarm ran right into the city. So her reactions and her actions in seeking vengeance has now caused the death of everyone else. Well, and she can't even see anything else. So literally the of hordes are pouring over, killing and eating everyone. And she's still chasing after Henry and Sam to the detriment and eventually the loss of her own life because yeah. she's so blinded by her unforgiveness She's so fo- driven by her bitterness and her frustration and her, her, her inner longing to, uh, to settle the score of sorts that she, she can't see anything else, even in the midst of cordyceps hordes all around. When she should be attending to the situation at hand, mm-hmm. she's still seeking to try to bring this uh, thought of re- resolution in some ways, which isn't really a resolution. But. Well, and like, you know, you, you'll see her, she's willing to kill everyone. Henry's willing to sacrifice himself. He's like, hey, I'll come out. You let the kids go. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll come out. Like, they don't have anything to do with this. I'm the one that made the decision. I'm the one that turned them in. Like, this is who you have it against. And she's just like, nope, because they're associated with you. Therefore, they're the problem too. Yeah. So Henry, even though, again, he's he, Henry in a sense, killed someone to save his brother, is still willing to sacrifice himself to save other people. Where Kathleen is just willing to kill everyone to get her vengeance, you know, satisfied. Well, in many ways, she she's taking this, the concept of unforgiveness and resentment, and again, it's taking a normal human, something that we all understand at mm-hmm. some level and to some degree, and putting it within the pressure cooker of an apocalyptic scenario. And taking it to the logical end or the million, the the ninth degree of what it could be, but I think in many ways, I mean, that's a normal thing, right? Is unforgiveness blinds us, right? It resent the resentments cause us to miss things. It causes us to overfocus on certain situations and certain people, to obsess about things, and to really miss in the process all of the other matters of beauty. I mean, even I, I was thinking of how her brother, her mm-hmm. brother told her to forgive. Yeah. I mean, if it was one thing, if her brother said, yeah, avenge me, avenge me, but that was an interesting nuance in this. Cause usually it's the avenge me thing. Yeah. But here he's saying, she says he told me to forgive. And what did he get for that? What is the justice in that? What is the point in that? And so you can tell she's, even though he told her to forgive, she's questioning this place of what's even the point who brings about, and this, maybe this goes back to the idea of tyranny, the, the place of the rise and fall of regimes and stuff too is you just, in a post-apocalyptic scenario, you ask the question about where does justice come from? Yeah. Do we take justice into our own hands? And it goes back to that ethical conundrum thing we were talking about early on, is do we take justice into our own hands or is it something that's done by another? It's an interesting, uh, something to wrestle with in the midst of apocalyptic scenarios. Well, yeah, it's the it's the moral, you know, who decides what justice is? In that situation, you know, if you ask Fedra, they have their laws of what justice would be. The resistance are going to have their laws of what justice could be. So for for Kathleen, her justice is the complete and total destruction of everyone that stood in her way. Yeah. Even though her brothers called her to forgive. So, yeah, the, the moral conundrum behind it is quite fascinating. 
and I guess it's probably not all that different in the sense of who decides how to view forgiveness now. I mean, that's always the thing that people wrestle with is where does, what is the impetus and reason for forgiveness? What's the place that drives us to forgive, to reconciliation? You know, I know, you know, for me, a major driver has been a matter of faith, for example, of just being a place of, I believe that forgiveness really matters, that you can be forgiven, you can forgive others. But it is interesting to raise in the setting of what drives someone, what is the reason and utility for forgiveness and what's your actual reason to do so? You know, and I mean, I would have said it's better for your life in general, obviously yeah. that it, it's better for your mental health. It's better for your, your understanding and your place in uh, the world and for yourself and your family. At the same time, everyone has to wrestle with that. Now, another thing that stood out to me in the episode was the place of creativity and creativity as a coping mechanism of sorts. Mm -hmm. And it was all over the place. I actually really love this part of it. Maybe it's just because I'm somewhat artistic and I'd probably die because of that in the (laughs) end of the world. But nonetheless, storyteller and picture drawer is, you know, from the very beginning when you are introduced to Henry and Sam, and you see that the very thing that Henry gives him when he's scared is a pack of crayons. And there's a flash forward very quickly, and he's drawn superheroes, Super Sam, all over the walls. And I just thought that was such an interesting depiction, so fascinating, so important, because there's something that helps us grapple with our situation, hard, search, hard situations, hard circumstances, is creativity. And even what he's drawing really matters, because the other thread of this is the superhero dynamic. There's something with the place of fantasy. There's something with the place of these stories we tell ourselves. I even think of the popularity of a Marvel of sorts or other things that superheroes draw us into almost the same thing as creativity. They give us this way to see the world and to believe something can change, something can be different. I also think of when they get to the underground encampment where the people used to be and there's drawings all over the walls. And there's this place of, there's even, I, they find a superhero comic and they're reading it. it, comes back to that superhero theme as well. There's a, there's a goal driven on the wall where the kids can, you know, kick soccer. I know my kids would have had a blast with that, no matter if we're in the end of the world or not. Kicking balls, all the else, everything else. And you even think of Kathleen when she's looking back and recollecting her childhood. And she's looking back and she's actually in the midst of the room that her brother and her shared. And she shares how Michael would tell her that as long as we were together in our perfect box, we would be safe. And so right away, when, how to cope with difficult times, you're hitting on imagination, creativity, art, that how all of these things matter as a way to make sense, to make sense of a world that doesn't always make sense, right? To be able to, to cope with, to grapple with. And I mean, I think that's the place where all great art has come from in history is usually there's an impetus from the creator. There's an impetus behind, there's a motivation that, cause in one sense, all art is autobiographical. It's, it's someone wrestling with something and some of those beautiful art, the world seen has come from the, the hardest of circumstances mm-hmm. and the hardest of places. And so I actually think that's a really interesting point. Does that, does that make sense about the creativity? Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. And that's, yeah. I loved seeing that with Sam. I loved seeing him, him draw and, the crayons. I was like, "Ooh, that's a whole lot of crayons." You know, my my yeah. wife's a preschool teacher, or was a preschool teacher. Now she works with children's, and uh, just seeing that many crayons, I'm like, my wife would be like, "Ooh, I just want to use them all." Um, so many <laughs> different crafts we can do. Um, but no, I thought like just encouraging the creative spirit yeah. as a way to a process, b thrive, and um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Um, yeah, process what's, what you're going through. Just like figure things out. I think it encourages Sam to be able to, like if he's drawing and he's focused on drawing, he's not going to be looking outside. Yep. He's not going to be looking at what could potentially be coming to harm them. That's Henry's job yep. to make sure he's protected. This way Sam can be nurtured and be creative and you know, keep finding places for Super Sam to thrive and save the day. No, totally. And we're hitting on that even in an apocalyptic scenario, we hit on this episode three as well. When we're thinking, I'm thinking of when the painting, the mm-hmm. painting scenes as well, that with Bill and Frank is there's something more than just surviving that you have to find a way, not just to survive, but to thrive in these scenarios in these difficult times and challenging times. And one of the ways people grapple with that and make a way is through creativity is, is these things that maybe overtly don't show any, specific utility i guess for survival yeah you know it doesn't maybe necessarily pay the pay the bills or something but what it does do is it helps it brings out the more human parts of who we are it brings out this part of me that you almost have to be able to it brings out imagination yeah and in a place where there's grief and there's loss all around you to get through you have to have something that compels it stirs your imagination to believe something could change i think that's superhero shows and movies do as well now there's a negative part of that because you also can become so detached from reality that you're never actually grappling with hey superheroes aren't coming (laughs) superheroes aren't real for a reason yet there is something that there's that juxtaposition that you have to find attention within that that we need creativity we need to be able to cope we need to be able to process we need imagination yet there's also the other extreme too that we don't want to live in in unreality it's kind of like what you were talking about with Joel in one of our earlier episodes yeah, as well yeah the first episode of yep. the uh, false reality and false hope yep yeah so it, we've hit on a lot of themes here uh, i'm trying to look at my list here i have a bunch of random little things that i wanted to kind of hit and one i i thought is interesting this is more a practical thing so i wonder why other places and we don't know if they did or didn't didn't just push the quarter supports underground. It all depends if they have the, the infrastructure underground to do that. That's true. Okay. But I feel like most major cities, it just felt like a little bit, it was a nitpick for me. Yeah. Cause I was like, this is probably how it works in the game or whatever else. But I was like, well, why didn't everyone else do that in major cities? Why didn't Boston, you know, all these places have tunnels. Now it obviously didn't pay off long term yeah. because they eventually got out. But I just thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah. I was like, why didn't everyone do that? No, yeah it, yeah, it all depends on the city. I mean, here in Seattle, we have the uh, you know old Seattle underground tour and all that, but it's not it's not an easy easily accessible type of you know get them all down. There's a few entrances to do that with. Oh, that's true. Whereas I think uh, in the Kansas City, um, what they're referring to, I think they have the underground tunnel system that connects everything, and um, we don't really have that. <laughs> so yeah. it all depends on what the city has to be able to do that with. Um, that's true. The okay, the infrastructure. Yeah, because re- the the best thing to do in all reality would just be to kill all the infected in the area. Just fire well, that's bomb the bombing. Right. I mean, yeah. that was the bombing. Yeah. But pushing them all underground is a, you know, they're like, oh, well, eventually they'll die off, they'll starve off, they'll kill mm-hmm. themselves, but they did not. <laughs> Now, another thing is I want to give you a shout out. You predicted that the gun would be a central premise to the beginning of the next episode after episode three and the gun that Ellie had right away. I was like, gosh, darn it. Kenny's right again. He knows how to survive. <laughs> it, well, it was one of those things where I'm like, oh, look, there's the gun. I figured it out. Cool. Um, and I like the fact that, I mean, she used it, but she didn't, she didn't kill anyone with it. 
Yes. She, she sought someone and obviously there was terror. There was hardship that she hid. You saw her like collect herself and like shove things down yep. before Joel. Like, like, are you okay? How are you? You know, like, like she shoved it all down. Obviously there was turmoil she was dealing with for actually firing a gun at someone for the first time. Um, but yeah, I thought it was interesting to be like, oh, well, that was, that was quick. <laughs> it was right there. And the fact that he's like, put it in your bag and she just puts it back in her pocket. You know? No one, he trusts her to, yeah. to, to wield it now. Uh, another thing was Arby's. Arby's had a response. Actually, this was in episode three. They passed an Arby's, like a decrepit Arby's. Oh, yeah. in one of the, was it episode two or three? It was a while ago, actually. But Arby's, the company actually did a, like a, a meme off of it. So they actually posted the exact picture with like an apocalyptic kind of a decrepit Arby's sign. And the uh, the tagline was, if you have a an infectious brain fungus, please use the drive-thru. <laughs> great marketing to Arby's. Well, well done. And the fact that they still have Starbucks in the QZ. <laughs> oh, I yeah, I forgot to bring that up. That seems just, like a strange thing to me. I was like, really? Like, you like this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they, you know, we used to sell this stuff. You know, you know, there used to be places you could get there. Yeah, they the Starbucks back at the QZ. I'm like, there's still Starbucks in the post-apocalyptic, you know, wasteland. Maybe there's my utility. Maybe there's my ability. I, at my house, I believe I have six or seven different ways to make coffee. <laughs> You'll be the coffee maker. Maybe I'm the coffee hey, maker. In, in the Northwest, where we are, yeah, that's probably the best option. You could just be like, I'm the coffee guy. Come there get your it coffee. Is. I, I've officially added a skill to my survival belt. You've gained a level. I can make cold <laughs> brew. Do, 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 do. I, can make, I can make a French press. I can make a pour over. You know what, ready. Uh, a couple other things. You know, I like I already said, Sam's actually deaf in real life. I thought that was a really oh, interesting. Yeah. Just it was. I've been loving the post episode. Make sure if you're watching the episodes, you watch the credits, and then there HBO does a the directors and the actors speaking of how the episode came to be. I thought that was incredible. You should definitely watch that after the episodes. And they explain Sam. And they get into that more. Um, is there anything else that? you want to from the episode that stood out to you from these episodes i mean just like fun random points i just love the humor between um joel and ellie it's starting to like really blossom like when at one point where uh i can't uh well, she said something along the lines of uh where would you be without me and he goes right now wyoming you know just like <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like there's a lot of like a quick back and forth and uh the scene where they're in the they're in the high-rise tower and uh she tells the joke or tells the beginning of the joke and he gives the punchline. She's like, you know that? And they start laughing back and forth. I really appreciated that. There's just good humor. And the fact that she's noticing things about him, mm-hmm. like when the, he's like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, we'll, we'll hear the crunch. We'll hear the things. And she goes, we'll sleep on your uh, right, left side because I've noticed, you know, your left ear mm-hmm. it doesn't hear too well. And then when they wake up with the guns pointing on it, he's sleeping on his, uh, whatever side it was where his ear doesn't hear very well. Oh yeah. You know, I'm like, oh, she called it out. Mm. So she's starting to get to know him in a you know more deeper personal way to understand the nuances of who he is as a person. Yeah. So I appreciate that. No, that's uh, you're hitting on a lot of important things that I think are uh, are standing out. I mean, we've already referenced the bloater. I've just said it. How many times have I said bloater in this episode? But uh, We can go back and count like 12 maybe. I don't know. Oh, I know. There's always one word. But I, I thought that was... Uh, really, I mean, intricate and beautiful in the sense of the the artistry of it. I also thought it was a, just a good reminder at the very end of the episode: zombies are still here. That was because yeah. it'd been a while since we'd seen zombies. Since we really. see the infected. Yeah, the oh, here they are. Yep. Yeah. 
And maybe I shouldn't say zombie. I'd probably say cordyceps hordes or whatever. Infected. Infected would be a better one. Yep. Yeah. That's more culturally appropriate way. Is it is, is zombie not a cultural appropriate <laughs> No, I'm just in this episode. I'm just messing with you. Uh, <laughs> I another comment, Sam, when he after he got bit, I thought when he, he etched a sketch it or whatever, he had said, if you turn into a monster, is it still inside you? I just thought that was an interesting And while on that subject, uh well so I will put a pin in what I was about to say. No, that's really interesting for him to be scared, to him to know that he's gonna turn. It's like, am I still gonna be who I am on the inside or am I just gone? Yep. Like that's that's a hard question to answer, you know? And No, it's a matter of the soul and yeah. consciousness. And uh, I mean, most zombie infected, these kind of things don't really get into it. The only one I can think of is the, the Zack Snyder one that had Dave Batista in it. I believe it came out in 2021. I'm spacing on the name right now. Army of the Dead or? Yeah, it was Army Man. of the Dead. I think it was on yeah. Netflix, but it was sort of a... Well, how would I phrase it? It was like a Ocean's Ocean's Eleven meets uh, kind of like a zombie movie, oh, Walking yeah, yeah. Dead sort of. That it's the only one I can think of where the zombies showed intelligence at some level or a developing kind of evolutionary intelligence growing along the way. But for the most part, we don't really ever get a a dynamic of the matters of the soul of consciousness in yeah. these beings. So I thought it was a really interesting, uh, poignant observation. Was there something else you wanted to put a pin in that you wanted to say? Yeah, so we got on the subject of Sam being bit, and so Ellie cuts her hand, and yes, it's like, oh, my blood can save you, and you know, like smears her blood on his wound, and nothing happens. Yep. You know, like there's the hope that you're like, oh, will this will this change? And then next morning you wake up, he's sitting in a sunbeam, and she, uh, you know, him being deaf, you know, like and you pointed that out to me earlier, him being deaf, he didn't notice her until she got into the place of eyesight and then yeah. he goes crazy but now she has this I, I there's probably this like doubt like is it just for me am i am i the only one that can actually use this or mm. will my will my blood actually save other people yeah you know well like will can, can they do something with my blood because like the direct transfer of you know her cutting herself and putting it on the wound did nothing yep so can they make a uh vaccine can they make a you know some kind of medicine out of it or um yeah, am I just the only person that gets to live with this? No, I'm interested to see how that plays into the next few episodes. Mm-hmm. Is there a a struggling with doubt? Is there a uh, less of a a belief in what could be? I I'm interested to see. I I, I think that will come up, and it's going to be interesting to see where that where that goes as well. And now, Kenny, is there anything else you want to say about the episode? No, I'm good. I mean, there's. I just love this series. I think it's playing very well. It's it's each episode is something new. And even episode four. So when it comes down to like how episodes four and five were, episode four was definitely like a setup for episode five. But even as a setup episode, it was done very well. Yes. You know where it wasn't. It didn't feel like you're just waiting and that they're like everything. Like they did. They opened. They were opening it up to like show you a glimpse of what it is, and then they just gave you everything. I thought that was really nice. No, it was it. Sometimes when you watch a series, a set of episode can feel very much so like a waste of time. Yeah, it was like a filler. Yeah, you needed to kill an hour to set up what's coming next. And I also like how there's there's payoffs very soon. Mm-hmm. It, they still have the long-term storyline building, but there's there's payoffs with in these episodes, these mini, whether it's one episode or two episodes, that there's very much so a fulfilling dynamic of that that feels like a show within the show mm-hmm. almost with these relationships. And even the standalone episode we had in episode three had a, a tie in at the end to the main arc that we're developing, yeah. even though it was a different story. So like we talked about today, how far will you go for family? 
I mean, that's kind of the question. That's what wrestling with. Yeah, we haven't answered it for ourselves because it's a question you don't often ask of yourself. That is true. This is the ethical conundrum you can think about this week. And so we just want to thank you as our listeners for, for joining us, for giving us your time. We know your time is very precious, and so we want to use it to the best we can. Now, as we close, I do ask a few things. It, please subscribe and share this podcast. We are trying to get it out. We believe we've got we've got something good going here. Maybe not, I don't know. But we want to be able to share more people just the gift, the glory of the apocalypse, which sounds like the strangest way I could possibly say that. <laughs> but we want to share more about just, we believe, again, these stories speak to our humanity. They don't just portray the end of the world. They portray what we go through in the midst of any endings and any version of new beginnings. And so please subscribe and share. You can follow me at, at Trev William Horn. Uh, you can recently, I've been working on a series of articles as well on medium.com about the upcoming Oscars, which I'm very excited about. I've been writing an article on every one of the top picture contenders. And so I'm really excited about it. Hopefully we'll be doing a pod about one of them very soon. Have not talked to you about that yet, Kenny. I'm excited. Yeah, it's exciting. And so you can go on Instagram, link in my bio. You can find those or just go to medium.com and look up Trevor William Horn. And as we close, again, we just want to thank you and I guess the fitting way to end this is just to say this is the end. 